The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm John Ford. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, we'll hear from Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square. He joined me in CNBC's Technology Executive Council at an event on July 15th, 2020. We discussed his inspiration for the Square payment device, saying no to the CEO title, taking on Amazon, and the role that innovation plays during disruptive times, like we're in right now. Jim's book, The Innovation Stack, was published earlier this year. Take a listen. Well, I want to talk about the book because it's on the face of it about starting from scratch and building something new. But I think there are a bunch of things that apply to any group uh, that is trying to innovate. Um, So first off, what's an innovation stack? So an innovation stack is this thing that I discovered when I was trying to explain how Square survived an attack from Amazon. So when we were a three-year-old startup, Amazon copied our product, undercut our price. And when they do this to a startup, they always win. Um, But in Square's case, um, Square won. And literally a year after Amazon attacked us, uh, they were mailing, um, you know, one of these little card readers to all their former customers. And, I was happy we won, but I couldn't explain what happened. So um, I'm a scientist by training, and I got fascinated by this question of what did Square do differently than all these other startups that Amazon just literally obliterated. And the answer was there was a pattern, and it was a pattern that had been repeated throughout history. And so as I looked back, sometimes going back a 1,000 years, but I, I saw the pattern, and I was like, oh, my God, wait a second. The process of innovation, what we had just lived through at Square, um, was exactly what happened to these other companies. And so it's, it's a very simple idea, which is that most human endeavor is copying. In other words, if you're going to do something and you want to be successful, the best thing you can do is find somebody else who's done it and do what they did. Um, and that works in biology. It works in science. It works – I mean, it's, it's how we as humans – you know, are born. Um, it's our educational system works. It's how we basically succeed is we copy. And we're very, very good at that. Um, but it turns out that copying by itself won't solve all problems. And so what we noticed was that these companies that would innovate, i.e. build not one or two, but a whole stack of inventions would end up basically creating new industries. And I thought that was super interesting because I'd never seen it discussed. So that's basically what an innovation stack is. It's a series of uh, unique inventions applied to a new industry. And um, it's a process that I've never seen discussed before. All right. So before we go deeper into that, let's back up and talk about how Square even became a thing. Uh, you, You write in the book about how you met Jack Dorsey when he was in high school, <laughs> I think he needed help with um, a little company that you had that was I think, putting trade show materials on CD-ROM. Is that right? Yep. That's absolutely correct. Uh, I hired Jack when he was 15 years old. 
we became friends. Um, and then in 2008, uh, when he uh, had been kicked out of Twitter for the first time, um, he came back to St. Louis. We reconnected and Jack uh, asked me if I wanted to start a company with him. And I said, sure, let's do something. But neither one of us had an idea. So we cast about for an idea for about a week, uh, came up with this idea that neither one of us, I think, was that excited about. But then we uh, decided, you know, we needed to start working on something. So we were about to start working on this other idea. And I went back to my studio. So I'm, I'm a glass blower. I, I make, you know, sort of stuff that nobody needs. Um, and I was trying to sell this piece to this lady who only had an American Express card. And I couldn't take the payment and I lost the sale. And when I lost the sale, I got really upset and uh, looked at, you know, my iPhone. And I said, why didn't this device allow me to complete that transaction? And so um, I called Jack and I said, I think what we should do is build something that allows me to get paid. So it was all about, you know, my personal experience as a small business person. Um, and then Square grew up, for, grew up from that. Huh, okay. And you, you write in the book in the first explanation of what an innovation stack is. You say uh, the problem with solving one problem is that it usually creates a new problem that requires a new solution with its own new problems. This problem-solution problem chain continues until eventually one of two things happens. Either you fail to solve a problem and you die, or you succeed in solving all the problems with a collection of both interlocking and independent innovation. This successful collection is what I call an innovation stack. I mean, it sounds to me like this should work inside companies that are trying to innovate um, in pretty much the same way as it works for an, an upstart company started by you and Jack Dorsey. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, it's a little harder inside companies because companies, particularly successful companies, have this like antibody response to innovation. And um, we see this particularly in financial companies because they're heavily regulated for good reason. We don't want unregulated commerce. Um, but if you regulate too much, you can kill innovation. And the thing about very successful companies is that they tend to become successful and then they instantiate that success in a series of rules. And if the rules are followed too rigidly, they prevent change, which is the nature of innovation. So uh, bigger companies can do it. It's just a little bit different process. So right now I'm consulting um, with a uh, with it's Fannie Mae, um, and they are uh, a giant company. They're responsible for something like 80% of the mortgages in the United States in one way or the other. They touch about 80% of the of the housing deals, and uh, very very difficult to get innovation out. But we figured out a process that works within their organization. Um, but the interesting thing about that process is that it begins with not disregard for regulation, but respect for regulation. But then you try to cleave off enough space so that innovation can happen. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now, as people start thinking about how the innovation stack works, you, you bring up early on, uh, you, you heard the phrase, so we have to a lot. And that's kind of a theme that repeats. I just want to read a little bit of that. You say, I heard this phrase, so we have to, repeated like a cult benediction during the early days of Square, and we meant it. We want to allow millions of small businesses to accept credit cards for the first time, so we have to make it easy to sign up. We need easy sign up 
So we have to design simple software and eliminate paper contracts. We have millions of people signing up, so we have to keep customer service costs down and, and so on and so forth. Uh, what strikes me about that is you seem to be saying that a key to innovating in this way is having a principle about what you're trying to provide or what you must provide to the end user, whether that's a customer, whether that's uh, somebody in, internally. And, and that principle, we must, is what drives the innovation. Am I reading that right? Yes. In fact, it's, it's that principle as opposed to the emphasis on the innovation itself. So the formula, if you have a formula, is if you have a problem, the first thing you should do is go try to find somebody else with the same problem and copy that solution. That's, that's usually a very good way of doing it. And if your goal is to innovate at all costs, uh, you're going to get distracted from what your real task is. But what I found is that innovation is almost antithetical to most human behavior. In other words, if you start doing something that is different from the rest of us, you will feel very uncomfortable. Whether you're in a corporate setting or personally, it's just not something that we humans do well. So the common thread that I found with companies that were successful in building these innovation stacks was that they didn't choose to be innovative. Instead, they chose to focus on this specific problem but the problem had never been solved before. And because the problem was new, there was no solution to copy. And then that forced this very, frankly, unpleasant process of innovating on the company. And then you get this messy thing where you can't just do one or two things. You have to do 10 or 20. And that becomes the innovation stack. But, but sort of the key here, John, is that innovation is not a choice. It's not something you, you know, you circle everybody together in a conference room and say, we need to be more innovative. And then, you know, you end up with blue flecks in the laundry detergent with that sort of innovation. Um, what I'm talking about is when companies pick a specific problem to solve and then go after that problem using whatever tools they had. And if it's a new problem, then innovation is required, but it'll happen only as a last resort. One of the biggest antibodies to innovation in a larger company, I would think, is having options. When you're a small company, I mean, one pivot, it can be extremely costly. But in a big company, you know, unless somebody with some serious power, maybe even the CEO tells you, you absolutely must do this, you can end up thinking, oh, well, we could do this, or we could do it later, or we could do this other thing, or we can kind of halfway do it and halfway do something else, or we could partner, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is that, you think, one of the potential antibodies or dangers inside an organization to real uh, innovation? Well, absolutely. You're, you've got a system that's working, um, and there are a lot of people that work within that system and fight to preserve it. Um, I saw this even in the very first days of my own little startup. So it's not just endemic to big companies. But ironically, this is how Jack Dorsey and I became friends because I had a company. Um, this was pre-internet and uh, the internet was coming and it was going to literally obliterate my company. And I saw this and I gathered the whole company together and I said, look, in 18 months, we're going to be dead because our product is going to be completely obsolete once the internet arrives. And everyone said, yes, yes, yes. But Nobody would change their behavior. The only person who listened to me was my 15-year-old intern. That was Jack. And that's how Jack and I became such good friends because he and I went off by ourselves and had to basically start a new company because I wasn't an effective enough leader, you know, even with a 15-person crew to turn the group around. So it's very difficult to fight this, especially if your company is successful. 
So what does this say about the kinds of processes, even within technology organizations, that TEC members might want to think about and need to think about uh, in order to innovate? I think about how, how Cisco had that group that would go out and, and was funded and invent new technologies. I think about how early on in Apple, you know, the, the Macintosh team was sequestered by itself flying a pirate flag. And there are, you know, examples after examples. Is that still necessary? And how do you do that in a world coming where teams are distanced by nature anyway? So um, I, I don't know how the distancing is going to change that. It may actually help it. Uh, it may be the getting out of, you know, sort of the corporate think because you're physically separated has some advantages. But again, we will see because <laughs> this is all new to us. Um, although what I will say from my experience at Square is that Square had a very successful product line, uh, which is the one, you know, Jack and I started. And then within the company, we actually started this little side project um, uh, that became the Cash App. And the Cash App, I would argue, is, is equally as significant as uh, the, the the register app, which or you know the, the payments system, um, so it is possible to do without some sort of you know physical sequestering. But Square as a company was still had a very young culture, and it was not in our nature to fight something new at that point. But um, sometimes you just need to physically sequester. So, for instance, um, in one of the companies that I consult for, um, they were having trouble with innovation. And I just said, look, you know, you need to physically get a separate office because they had this beautiful sort of corporate tower and it, it, it just killed the vibe. So we got them a little nasty office a couple of streets down and that's where the team worked. Uh, and to this day, uh, that team's inventions still get attacked by the corporate parent. But, you know, the, the other thing that I think is super important and it doesn't get enough uh, emphasis this idea of respecting rules um, because you do have rules that limit innovation, but they usually exist for a reason. And if you're completely disrespectful of those rules, uh, you tend to create this, this rift in the company that doesn't get healed. And then you have warring factions and that's just a mess. And, 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 you know, maybe that's why they were flying the pirate flag at Apple. Um, but I think you can do more if you're sort of respectful of why the rules exist even though you're trying to break them. Tell me about the Cash app. I, I've never talked to anyone about this yet, and you're a director there at Square. If Square itself were personified, I would think of it as sort of a, you know, a suburban, middle-aged, small business owner, perhaps. But the Cash app is like a, a teenage kid with bling. So, I mean, even culturally, the way they got adopted is different. And I wonder if the process of developing them was therefore different in some way, if there's if there's some innovation lessons uh, there, too. Well, um, there certainly are. Uh, the way Cash App came to be was we built something that we wanted, that we thought the world needed. Um, but again, we had no idea if anyone would agree with us. So uh, when we released it to the world, what we found was this, you know, super young, a group of people who, frankly, were a lot cooler than, you know, I was. Uh, if, if I'm the reference standard, probably not. But they were just, it was just embraced by this group that really needed um, these tools. And then once you start, uh, you know, listening to the people who are using your products, you hear other needs. And then it sort of evolves organically. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we weren't trying to be cool. 
I mean, I'll tell you this from the start, you know, the, the, the two most innovative products that have come since the original product at Square, um, there was no effort to, you know, try to look cool or be cool. I mean, you know, these are financial products. This is, you know, moving money from point A to point B. Um, our goal at Square is to be almost so boring as to be invisible in certain activities. In other words, if you if you really want to create something that is that is the perfect product in payments, I think it's better to look at something that's not even noticed than something that's really in your face. Um, so we don't try for the bling, but sometimes it shows up. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. What have you learned uh, about leadership styles, Jim, and their effect on innovation and the innovation stack? Does it depend on the culture of the company you think, what leadership styles are most effective? Are there certain things, even certain considerations uh, that tend to have more or less of an impact? So um, first a disclaimer, and that is I'm not a very good leader. Um, I don't run any of the companies that I start. I have never been a good, I mean, ever since that, you know, that situation where the only person I could get to follow my lead was my 15 year old intern, you know, 25 years ago. I'm not a good leader. So with that as a backdrop, I will say, well, yeah, but then, you know, when we started Square, we decided that he should be CEO. (laughs) Like that was a two minute conversation. Um, So I'm not a guy to give leadership advice. But what I can tell you as somebody who's a scientist and somebody who's who's studied other very successful organizations and their leaders or their founders is that in most cases, the leaders of these companies that build world-changing innovation stacks are typically unqualified on paper to do what they're doing. So biggest airline in the country was started by a team of guys, uh, you know, primarily led by Herb Kelleher at Southwest um, that, you know, Herb Herb was an attorney, Uh, biggest bank in the world. Uh, started by a produce vendor who dropped out of school at age 15. I mean, literally no formal qualifications. Um, Jack's only professional qualification. He's a certified massage therapist. Um, I'm a glass blower. You know, we have no credentials to be in um, payments. Um, and, and on and on. What we found in the research for my book is that formal qualifications tend to be only possible to acquire if a if an industry is already sort of set in other words right now if i want to fly a plane i can go out uh i can get uh you know get my medical uh, get ground school get flight school uh pass a couple of check rides and then i am legally certified to fly a plane great and that's appropriate these days if i'm going to fly but the wright brothers you know wilbur and orville wright had no qualifications to fly the first airplane because they couldn't they were the very first men in the air, humankind had not flown yet, so they couldn't be qualified. And what we noticed in the research for the innovation stack was that many, many of the companies that ended up dominating um, their markets were founded by leaders who didn't have formal qualification at all. 
in what they were doing. And that, that seemed to be this base note, along with this other thing that I think is probably more relevant now than, any, than ever before, and that is they all face crises. They were all dealing with chaotic, turbulent times. Um, I mean, Square was founded in the last recession, and then Amazon attacked us. Like, we had our series of battles, but like nothing compared to what they went through at Southwest, nothing compared to what Ikea went through, uh, nothing compared to what Bank of America went through. Like Bank of America, which used to be called the Bank of Italy, was founded by a guy in San Francisco the year before the great San Francisco earthquake. So basically, he opens his bank, and then his city shakes and burns to the ground. And that's <laughs> the business environment they found themselves in. And one of his innovations that you write about is banking for women. Yes. Imagine that. <laughs> like, but, but, and I don't want to make light of this. There were so many practices in the banking world of 100 years ago that would seem foreign to us today. What you think of as a bank. So, John, when you, when you picture a bank in your mind, you're picturing the Bank of Italy. You're picturing something with branches. You're picturing tellers who would speak your language, tellers who you could talk to, um, loans, installment loans, car loans, home loans, all this stuff. Like, that didn't exist beforehand. Like, it just was not this thing. Um, and what we now think of as banking uh, is as a result of what happened with uh, the Bank of America. How do you recreate the the impact of a lack of qualifications? I, I think about how Apple has in the past sometimes assembled special teams to work on projects. There's a leader picked for the secret project and then gets to poach from all kinds of other places, uh, people who might not even know entirely what they're working on, but they know they've been chosen. I, I wonder if that, in a way, achieves in a large company the type of effect that you're talking about, sort of being plunged into the unknown and even having to work with a less than familiar group of people without kind of predefined roles to solve a problem. So, I mean, again, I'm not a manager, so it would just be a guess for me to say, yeah, that sounds like it might work. But again, I wouldn't focus on innovation at all. I wouldn't focus on the process. Um, what I would do is take pains to understand what the process looks like. And that's sort of the focus of the book. You understand the process, how the process looks, how the process works. And then you ignore it because that's not relevant. You're not trying to be innovative. You're trying to solve a particular problem. And if you focus on the problem, then look, it's perfectly okay to copy a solution to solve a problem. But if you choose the problem correctly, i.e. you choose a problem that mankind has not solved before, then you won't be able to copy everything. And so in that case, what happens is most people quit. And that's the result of us being trained and raised and basically biologically predisposed to copy everything. So, and, and, and this gets to the central idea. I see so many people who start on this path that could lead to a truly innovative solution. And then we get to that one part where they can't copy the solution they quit because they feel so uncomfortable. And what I wanted to do is just say, look, the greatest companies in the world, the ones that are all household, household names right now, all went through that same process. And when they hit that gap in human knowledge, they somehow got across it. And it's uncomfortable, but it is what drives the world forward. And we shouldn't all stop just because, you know, what we're doing has not been done before. 
Yeah, interesting. And then once again, everybody, we are talking about uh, Jim McKelvey's book, The Innovation Stack. Uh, and one of the central events in this book is the Amazon attack on Square, which, which you have mentioned. But we haven't talked about what Square did. And I can't figure out what to think about this, because what Square did when Amazon attacked is nothing. Nothing. Yeah. It was amazing and very, very uncomfortable. So, um, so Amazon attacked us. The first thing we did uh, was we looked for any other companies that had survived an attack by Amazon, and we found nobody. So we didn't have um, any model that we could emulate. So then we looked at the things we could do. And, you know, we, so for instance, Amazon undercut our price, and we could have copied Amazon uh, and lowered our price, but we didn't do that because... It would, it would have been insane. Amazon was basically charging um, a, a rate that was so low that we would, have, and we would have been out of business if we did that. So we didn't even match them on price. We basically just took a look at what we were doing and concluded what we were doing made sense. And the reason it made sense is because we had this innovation stack. Now, we, wouldn't, we didn't call it that yet, but we had this thing, and this thing was going to guide us whether Amazon. So we didn't focus on Amazon. And we just went. Um, uh, we just went ahead. So basically, in response to Amazon, we did nothing. Well, or I, I should mean, say, nothing different. Nothing different. You you decided that what you were already doing were pretty much the right things. Since then, one could argue uh, Etsy has similarly stood up to Amazon and survived. Roku. Uh, has done it as well. And I'm sure there are others. I mean, I, I guess you could look at some of the food delivery folks, though they're losing money. I don't know if they're the best example. Um, it, have they all maybe done nothing? Is that, a, is that a lesson about effective competition and focus on the customer? It's a cliche that journalists always hear from people. Well, we're just going to focus on the customer. We don't think about the competition. And I usually think Psh, that's a load. Not true. But maybe in this case... It kind of is true. Well, it depends what sort of business you're running. So if your business is one where you have a lot of competitors that are offering mostly similar products, then you should focus on your competitors to some extent. You should know what they're doing because um, you're in this you know, race of margins. Um, if you're a company that's doing something that is totally innovative, then focusing on the competition is not that important. So um, forget Square as an example. I, I look at Southwest as sort of the classic example because um, the airline industry is really a great competitive landscape because almost everyone is constrained by the same um, rules and, you know, everyone flies Boeing hardware. Um, they're all flying, uh, you know, in the same air and uh, people are happy to, cha happy to choose. So it's a perfect environment to study competition. But if you look at the companies that attacked Southwest and what Southwest did in response, Southwest very rarely responded to their competition. So again, this is sort of one of the central ideas with the book is that most companies are going to be in this sort of narrow peloton of competitors that are all behaving very similarly. But sometimes if you build an innovation stack, you will build a company that 
is on its own. And even though it looks like another airline, it turns out that Southwest is not an airline the way Braniff, Texas International, Pan Am, and American were. They were this other thing. And um, it had a profound impact on, on, on what they were able to do as a company. So I just wanted to sort of shine a light on this other area because, you know, as somebody who's, I mean, I guess I've started seven or eight companies and nonprofits and whatnot. Um, like, I wish I'd known this. Like, I wish I'd known because if you know it, then you can look at a situation and determine whether copying your competition is the best move or ignoring your competition is the best move. And it's a different move depending on what sort of market you're in. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Have you ever, Jim, seen an innovation stack unravel? I wonder if there are ways that a thread gets pulled and something goes wrong. Either you start going on a sequence of the wrong questions or you think you have something solved when you don't. Um, is there a way that this goes bad? Uh, sure. Um, but typically those are like, um, you know, genetic flaws. If, you know, if your DNA is messed up enough, uh, the the organism dies. So what typically happens uh, with innovation stacks is because they evolve out of sight in these little companies that nobody's heard of, if there's a problem, if there's a, you know, cataclysm on one of the components that's a necessary component, then the company just dies and we never talk about it. Now, innovation stacks that actually get out into the marketplace and start uh, generating their own, um, you know, sort of markets, those tend to be extremely durable for two reasons. The first is the process that creates the stack to begin with um, is a very nimble process. Like you don't build one of these things by, you know, whiteboarding everything out and saying, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. No, it's, it's more sort of like a series of emergencies that you react to and it creates this very durable organic thing. Um, so that's advantage one. Advantage two is that innovation stack companies tend to build their own markets. And one of the things that we see is that the customer becomes part of the innovation stack. So in other words, we teach our customers to behave differently. So, um, you know, like Southwest Airlines, like the customers at Southwest Airlines expect to not get meals, expect to not have assigned seating, expect, and, and you know, I talked to Herb at length about this because one of the big complaints that Herb um, was always hearing from his customers was that they, they wanted assigned seats. You know, people would say, well, I want an assigned seat, but then 
So Southwest surveys their customers, and they found out that Southwest customers don't want assigned seats. They want to be able to show up at the last minute and buy their way to the front of the line if they've got a business ticket. And otherwise, they're happy with the low fare, and they'll sit in the back of the plane or in the middle seat, which everybody hates. Um, but the point is that your customer base is this thing that is part of your innovation stack. And they're very durable, which means that if something goes wrong, your customers, many cases, will flex with you. And, and by the way, we saw this at Square in the current crisis. We've seen little companies that are using Square where their customers are so loyal that they were buying Square gift cards to basically give money to keep their favorite businesses. These are mostly restaurants, but keep their fav favorite businesses in business. So the customer base for an innovation stack company can be one of your greatest assets. Uh, another very important asset, it seems, for an innovation stack company is talent internally. And uh, I, I guess a strong culture becomes necessary for that. You, you tell a story also in the book about early days of Square and you know, poaching away from other companies. And I, I'm sure we all know about this phenomenon. You, you say that it was an engineer who you offered $100,000 in salary, $100,000 in pre-IPO stock. And the big Silicon Valley that this person was working for to keep them offered $8 million, but that person still came to Square. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, and, and when you say pre-IPO stock, it was like, there was no idea that we were going to IPO. Like we had no, it wasn't like, oh, Square's going to IPO and then my stock will be worth millions. Like, no, this guy came to work for us for reasons that I found economically irrational. And I was so amazed that with an $8 million counteroffer, he still came to work for Square that I was embarrassed to talk to him. Like I didn't, I, I couldn't ask him why he did it without sort of insulting him. So I never talked to the man. So, I mean, he knows who he is. He might be watching today and I'm glad it worked out for you. <laughs> but the point is we had no even idea. After the IPO, you didn't didn't. Ask, I, think, I think you can ask now. No, no, no. Cause it's, it's, it's insulting. <laughs> it's insulting. Like it's insulting. Cause I was like, what the hell were you thinking? You know? Um, so, uh, so yeah, we had to let that one go, but here's the thing about an IPO. Um, you, you, if you're working for a startup, you're working for a company and your goal is to get to the point where this company all of a sudden magically makes, makes you a millionaire. Um, that's a, that's a pretty weak motivation and, you know, it sounds cool, but it's really not that motivating. What's motivating is focusing on a problem. What's motivating is doing something that has never been done with a peep you know, with the name of other zealots. And this is where innovation stack companies can really um, sort of shine because they'll, they'll say, we want to do this. We want to solve this problem. And they're focused on that problem. They don't really care how the problem is solved, but they get enough people who want to do that. And I believe that's why we were so successful in hiring is because we were basically saying, hey, look, there's small businesses out there who can't get paid. We want to help them get paid. And almost everybody knew you know, a friend or a relative who was a small business. And they said, yeah, I can relate to that problem. And that is very powerful as a motivator. So how do you fuel that motivation continually? Do you intentionally and consciously kind of restate that objective? Do you remind the people of what the mission is or does it just sort of happen organically? So, um, Again, sample set of one, because I'm only talking about Square here. We didn't do anything explicit. We didn't stand up and have, have meetings. We didn't, we didn't 
we didn't do anything except openly share information. And I think that was probably the best thing we could have done. We, we took, you know, the mission, we talked about it and it was part of the, it was part of the culture. But what we also did was we didn't, we didn't beat it into their heads. It was so obvious that it was one of our values that we never discussed it, but then we openly shared information. And so that sort of infused through the culture. Now it seemed to work, but that's that I'm no management expert. So is that the reason it worked? I don't know. What would you guess is the reason it worked if there's a way to translate that to a larger organization? I mean, yeah, some people just kind of want to work for something smaller and scrappier and have more influence perhaps. And that's part of that uh, sense of working with a team of zealots, but there are teams with zealots inside teams of zealots inside established uh, companies, or at least there there can be. Are there ways you think or that you've seen to to capture uh, that effect? Well, I mean, uh, one of the things that I've seen, and this is you know as a consultant uh, to Fannie Mae, which is sort of my my one sort of current big. Well, actually, Fannie Mae and the Fed. Okay, the, I'm on the Fed too. Um, so when we talk about things there, uh, I think it's important to remind people what the mission is, you know, um, you know, full employment, economic stability, uh, you know, stable prices. Well, that's, those are important things. So if you work at the fed and you think your job is just accounting, um, or bank examining or, you know, some, some microcosm, sometimes it helps to, to, you know, grasp the bigger mission, um, what we did at Fannie Mae, um, which I think was also, you know, pretty effective was, you know, we started by going and saying, you know, look, Fannie Mae is about getting Americans to own their home and that's fundamentally good for society. And we help do that. And so it was possible to, you know, sort of draw some strength from that mission. Um, and that's going to motivate a lot of people. And now finally, what would you, what would you say, changes, if anything, about the innovation stack concept in a period like this when we are trying to recover from a pandemic? So the pattern that I noticed, um, and I mentioned this before, was that every one of these companies that I studied dealt with some cataclysm. I mean, the, like, I, there was one that was so big. I don't, know, I don't know if you told them this, but like the first draft of the book was a graphic novel. This is it. Like, this is my first draft of the book looked like this. It was all pictures and, you know, there's a guy getting shot. And over here, I mean, there's the great San Francisco earthquake. You can see that. Like the point is, this was very dramatic stuff. I didn't think it deserved to be written as a business book. I thought it deserved to be, you know, pen and ink. And the reason it wasn't because Herb Kelleher hated that idea. Herb just, <laughs> he did not want, want that. But here's the point. If you've got a situation like we've got right now, it's not necessarily good for entrepreneurs, but it is relatively good for entrepreneurs. Because entrepreneurs, and by that I mean people who are not copying, but doing unique things, trying things that might not work, trying things that haven't been proven to already be successful. That's chaos. That's pain. That is uncomfortable. And it's unavoidably uncomfortable. So let's take that as the baseline for the entrepreneur. You're always going to experience this level of discomfort. And if the rest of the world has this level of discomfort because everything's working just fine, well, then you're relatively disadvantaged. But if the whole world is thrown into chaos so that we're all now sort of looking like this level of discomfort, then 
it's not as bad relatively for you. So look, I'm not saying the pandemics are a great time to start a business because it's chaos. I'm saying that starting something that is new is going to be chaos anyway. And it's sort of better if everybody else is in chaos as well. And so the patterns that we see are that, especially during economic downturns, especially during you know, times of great disruption, people tend to be more open-minded about change. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, Rob at IBM, when he was introducing to us, talked about the rate of adoption of change. And that rate of adoption is increasing right now. Why? Well, because we're all in chaos. Well, if it were in chaos, we might as well quickly adapt new stuff. Mm. It's a good time. That was Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square and author of the book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. We spoke on July 15, 2020 at CNBC's Technology Executive Council event. For more information on the TEC and how you can become a member, visit us at cnbccouncils.com TEC. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. To join us at an upcoming virtual event, check out cnbcevents.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at CNBC events. I'm John Fort. Thanks for listening. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.